Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Everybody, this is hashtag Independent Media Monday on Rhymes Media Group. How are you today? I hope you had a wonderful weekend. I hope you, you know, had the opportunity to rest and to relax and to get your mind and your body together. Um, so many things have happened. So many things that need to be talked about. You know, uh. <laughs> And so you know that on Rhymes Media Group, this day is dedicated to independent media, such as we are, uh, and uh, alternative media, because the mainstream media has done a very poor job of bringing us the real news, and we'll talk a bit about that. Um, but I want to get started by talking about um, the situation from last night. And I had a hard time getting to sleep after this, after finding out that the, uh, the documentary short 
on the White Helmets won the Oscar, the Academy Award. Now, hear me out. I do not believe the Academy Award gives anyone carte blanche. I do not believe that the Academy Award is all that. Because at the, at the end of the day, it's uh, nine times out of ten, it's a popularity contest. And that's the disturbing part. How did the White Helmets group become popular amongst people voting in the Academy in Hollywood? How did it become popular? And what it shows us once again is the American populace. Once again, you know, we, we can't be fooled, you know, we are above propaganda. We, you know, we see right through things. Propaganda is what happens in those totalitarian regimes. Propaganda is what happens in those, you know, other countries. Well, guess what, ladies and gentlemen, this country is just as gullible when it comes to swallowing the company line as any other country. Are we clear on this? Are we clear on this? We are just as fallible, just as gullible as any other country. So what I want us to focus on and what I want us to understand uh, are the voices that have been on the ground in Syria and, and what they've come back with, what, what they've seen and what they've said about the White Helmets. I'm going to play a clip from uh, Vanessa Bealey, no, Eva Bartlett, uh, who was um, uh, on RT. Uh, so I'm going to go to that clip right now. Just buckle in right now, all right? Here we go. In terms of the demonization of the Syrian army and government, this is all part of the process of trying to convince the Western public to back, um, you know, Western administrations in supporting groups like the White Helmets, which pretend to be Syrian rescuers, but which have received over $20 million from the U.S., $20 million from the U.K., and $60 million, you know, together from various EU states. And what they're essentially doing is White Helmets, and I really want to stress this point because it's part of the overall scheme of propaganda and demonization. They're White Helmets by day and terrorists by night. You see many of these people that are dressed in their pristine white outfits um, and white helmets that pretend to be rescuing civilians. In other instances, you see the same characters holding their weapons and posing as rebels. Um, these are, have been well documented by various authors, including my colleague Vanessa Bailey. And, you know, this is the, um, the scandalous uh, hypocrisy of the West. Not only has the West been funding and training and arming terrorists to go into Syria and to behead and slaughter Syrian civilians, but now the West wants to award the White Helmets with the Nobel Peace Prize. And this, is, again, is a group of terrorists that operate solely in terrorist districts of Idlib and eastern Aleppo. And they are, have been known to pose with the dead bodies of Syrian soldiers. They are not neutral, they are not impartial, but they are, they are surely a tool of um, propaganda and regime change. So back to the bigger picture. The bigger picture is not about Syrian security, because if it was, then the West and the Gulf, uh, well, let's just stick with the West, would have to respect the fact that the Syrian people have chosen their government. Even if they want political change in the future, right now they want the current government they have, they want security, they want an end to 
to the West and Gulf and Israel and Turkey sending terrorists in to murder them. They want stability. They want an end of the sanctions that is uh, suffocating them. And so we see here that uh, uh, Eva Bartlett gives a very clear uh, and uh, precise response to the propaganda about the White House. Someone who's been on the ground, by the way, all right, it's been in Syria, has done extensive reporting along these lines. Uh, now, she mentioned Vanessa Bealey, and we're going to go to Vanessa Bealey right now and, and, and listen to what she has to say about the Western propaganda and uh, the White Helmets, all right? So hold on a second, okay? I want to go into the propaganda a little bit because the propaganda has been like nothing we have ever seen on this, the Western propaganda. And now here's something I know that you know about because I read your writing about it. And these are the so-called white helmets. And they're portrayed here in the U.S. as selfless humanitarians that rush in in the face of danger and save little children from the rubble. Uh, and they're always photographed doing this. But there is a different side to these so-called white helmets, and I think you know quite a bit about it, Vanessa. Yeah, absolutely, and thank you for bringing them up. As we know, they're, they're sort of being um, fated and uh, celebrated and iconized, really, as heroes and saviors of humanity. One of the things that I did while I was in Syria, and I did it deliberately as part of my investigation into this group, um, was I, I visited um, the real Syria civil defense um, in Aleppo, in Tartus, in Latakia, and the headquarters in Damascus, which is right in right in the um, Jaish uh, al-Islam territory, near close, very close by to Joba. So they're constantly under attack from, from terrorist mortar fire and snipers uh, and explosive bullets. Um, what I found out um, from the real Syria civil defense basically backed up um, the research that I'd been doing up until then. This is fundamentally, the White Helmets, in my opinion, are fundamentally an attempt by the U.S. and by NATO states to create a shadow state inside Syria, which again is a very familiar pattern. They did this in Iraq, and they are definitely doing this in Syria. Um, the White Helmets, despite saying that they are an NGO and that they're independent and that they have no funding from interested parties in the conflict in Syria, they're receiving probably now around $100 million at a, at a conservative estimate from um, the U.S. via USA, $23 million. From the U.K., we had Boris Johnson yesterday saying that he was going to up the ante to £32 million. Japan is now involved. Denmark, Holland, uh, Germany the other day confirmed that they would give them $7 million. Um, Holland. Um, so we have a cabal, a, a, a sort of a coalition of the white helmets, if you like, and $100 million we're supposed to believe is going to fund 3,000 operatives in a supposed um, cobbled together humanitarian NGO. This is the kind of money that you put into an army. It's not the kind of money that you put into a very simple NGO. We know um, for a fact they, they fabricate evidence. That's been proven in my reports. We know for a fact that they are sectarian. 
When the Madaya propaganda broke in January 2016, they were photographed calling for the burning and destruction of two um, Idlib villages, Kafraya and Fua, that have been under siege by the U.S. terrorists, Aral Sham, since March 2015, and have lost 1,700 civilians under shelling and sniper fire. And, and the White Helmets were calling for their further destruction. Um, we have numerous photographs showing them armed, showing them basically acting as terrorists, and then quickly putting on the white helmet when they're needed to make another promotional video. I mean, I'm being flippant here, but this is genuinely what is happening. When I spoke to the Syria Civil Defense, the real Syria Civil Defense, and again, I will reiterate, the white helmets are being used to eradicate yet another Syrian state institution, which is the real Syria civil defense that has been in existence for 63 years, since 1953. It's registered with the International Civil Defense Organization, which is affiliated to the UN, to the WHO, to OCHA, to Red Cross and Red Crescent. It's a fully certified um, civil defense organization. So why are the millions not going to this organization to help save civilians in Syria. This organization, the real Syria Civil Defense, is working in both terrorist and civilian areas, and it's rescuing people every day with no recognition from Western media. And not one Western media pundit has gone to visit the real Syria Civil Defense in five and a half years of war. That is, that's criminal in my book. Mm. Um, the White Helmets, just very quickly coming back to them, um, when I spoke to the Syria Civil Defense, particularly in Aleppo, they told me that in 2012, when the terrorists invaded, they took over the real Syria Civil Defense units there. These terrorists then later became the White Helmets. One of the crew members of the real Syria Civil Defense that's now in West Aleppo, it gets a little bit convoluted, he told me basically that when they came, they said to him, they threatened him, they said, you have to stay and work with us, you have to help us set this up. He escaped. He left his family behind. He had no choice. When he escaped, the so-called White Helmets put his name on all the checkpoints. So if he were to come back to visit his family in East Aleppo, he would be executed. Um, they stole uh, ambulances, all of the ambulances, three of their fire engines. They murdered other real civil defense members. They kidnapped others. They drove others out of East Aleppo into West Aleppo. And this is not an isolated incident. Basically, the same procedure happened in Idlib, in Deir ez-Zor, in Raqqa, um, across Syria, in other words. So, you know, this organization is basically, as far as I'm concerned, they're a terrorist support group. They're acting as terrorists in many instances, and they are terrorists, and yet they're being described by our governments as humanitarian first responders. And they, ladies and gentlemen, a short on them, ladies and gentlemen, just won the Oscar, the best documentary short. You, you, you heard <coughs> the accounts by two very credible sources who have been in uh, Syria, have been on the ground in Syria, have done the research. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is who we chose to put on a pedestal in this country. We've given them a platform now. It goes down in history now. It, it, it's a matter of history. Do we understand this? It is a matter of history. When we look back on history, 
When people look back on the Academy Awards and they go, well, who won the best Oscar short? I mean, it's not like a category that people, you know, you know, commit to memory, but it's there. It's on the same stage with some wonderful actors and actresses who worked very hard to perfect their craft. And you just put terrorists on the same platform as those people. I wanted to start this program, hashtag Independent Media Monday, with this particular, you know, because as I said, I I I, I couldn't sleep. I, I could barely sleep last night after hearing this. I could. I couldn't. It, it, it got to that point. We know that they've doctored photos, excuse me. We know that they have been rescuing children that have appeared in music videos years earlier. They have been rescuing children that appear in other countries years earlier. <laughs> How? Excuse me, how? How do you do that? See, this is what the problem is. Now, look, I am not a big fan of Trump. And Lord help me if it even looks like I'm trying to defend the man. But it is not him that when it comes to the media, it's not him when it comes to this distrust of the media. in which Hollywood plays a big part. That's not on him. That's on Hollywood. That is colluded with the government to pass propaganda off as truth. That's on the media who for years, in the church committee, we find out that they had people planted in newsrooms in CBS and places like that, planted in newsrooms of major newspapers, the CIA. This is what we found out in the church committee in 1975. This is what we see, this is what we know. And so when we talk about quote unquote fake news, that's a very real thing. Now, it has become minimized because Donald Trump, who I said before, who has a casual relationship with the truth, happens to call it fake news. People discredit it because he said it. Well, I'm saying that you can discredit me all you want. And I'm not trying to start some sort of fascist regime. And I'm telling you <laughs> that it's fake news. Matter of fact, they have told you it's fake news. Every single time they parrot the company line, they're telling you we are fake news. Weapons of mass destruction, Vietnam, Iran, Libya, Syria, over and over again, they tell you themselves they are fake news. And the fact that we're not more skeptical 
and the fact that we're not more circumspect and discerning when it comes to dissecting what we hear is the problem as well. You can't lay that at a politician's feet. You can't do it. How many times has the news have it said stuff and you, well, you know, you found out that it wasn't true? And because we have so many hours in a day, we have to work and we have to, we're dealing with the issues of our personal lives and we don't have time. And this is what they count on. They, they, they count on us not having time to, to really follow up on things. This is why I do the work that I do. Look, people, I'm not trying to steer you wrong. I don't have a vested interest in this. I'm not beholden to corporate interest. I'm not beholden to any party interest. All I'm beholden to is trying to bring to you the critical issues of the day, not filtered through some sort of corporate or partisan lens. All right? So let's talk about some of the other stories we find um, in the news, all right? In uh, independent media. Um, we have uh, this report from News Junkie Post, written by Gilbert, Gilbert Mercier. A uh, good friend, a uh, wonderful writer. Now, he wrote a piece called, Can the European Union Survive the Rise of Nationalism? He says in his piece, while the globalist world order of supranatural corporate imperialism is quickly losing ground, there is a worldwide revival of nationalism. Now, this general social sociopolitical trend could on one hand be a positive change if its goal is to push for countries to reclaim their national sovereignty anchored in what is left of their cultural specificity. On the other hand, it could drag in its trail the ugly mug of racism and the politics of exclusion in a world that has become, like it or not, an ethnic melting pot. In this context, we must understand the delicate balancing act of reclaiming our diversity without falling into the trap defined by the divide and conquer globalist Manchian, Manchian uh, strategy of fostering a so-called uh, clash of civilizations. Different cultures and civilizations can not only coexist peacefully side by side, but further, they can thrive and by doing so, perhaps reinvent the richness of the human experience, which has suffered decades of degradation of identity under the assault of a senseless globalist cultural meat grinder that is the weapon of choice of corporate imperialism. Can he write or not? Can he write or what? I mean, this is a, he weaved that wonderfully. And it is true, there is a wave of nationalism across European countries. There's a wave of quote-unquote nationalism that's taking place here in the United States, quote-unquote nationalism. And it does have possibilities. 
Now, this is where I diverge from my good friend Jabert. I think that when we talk about nationalism, especially in Western civilizations, it ultimately does become a, a conversation about nativism. It becomes a conversation about white supremacy. We see this happening over and over again. Because the definition, you can only work off the definition that you've had for the most part. Now, we, can, we, we have the ability to redefine certain things. But is the identity, it is the default position in all of these societies that people go back to. And the default setting in European societies, default setting in, you know, uh, countries such as, you know, uh, the United States and, and Canada, the default setting is whiteness. And this is the default setting that you see. It, it, it is almost impossible for them to untangle their nationalism from whiteness. It becomes this hostile nativism. Now, I've said this before. My ancestors have been here longer than most of the white folks who try to tell me to go back to Africa. <laughs> They've been here longer. Okay? So it is this, it is entangled in that. Because for so long, that's what it means to be, let's say, French. When you say, you know, uh, you know I'm French. If you're totally honest, the image that pops into your head isn't for someone who has dark skin or someone wearing a burqa even though they may be just as French as the Caucasian person in France. But that's not the first image that usually pops in a person's head when you hear someone say, well, I'm French. You say, if someone's French, absent of color, absent of anything, the default setting in a person's head, even people of color, click, the person is white. You say, I'm British. Click. The default setting in our head says, oh, that person's white. Even though they could be as dark, you know, as a person, you know, in Africa. So this default setting goes click. Okay? Goes click. So we have to understand that this rise in nationalism. And I understand that part of what's going on in Europe is that Europe has been controlled by the EU for quite some time. And the members of the EU, those people who govern through the EU, were not people that people in Britain or France or Germany placed there. So you have this conflict between, okay, I voted for this person in my country's parliament and the person in the EU who's supposed to quote-unquote represent me <laughs> is running counter to the post person that my vote went to. So what does my vote really mean? What does it really mean for me to be a citizen if that can be overridden by people that were not elected by those countries? So I understand that element of nationalism that's taking place 
in Europe. There are shades of gray, so there is nuance in this, okay? But Jibert does a wonderful job of really bringing out what's at stake here. What's at stake here? Now, I read a little bit more before I go on to the next piece uh, in the next uh, uh, independent media. In this existential sociological fight to redefine ourselves as citizens and not as consumer slaves of hideous anonymous of a hideous anonymous machine, the European Union is a key battleground of what could be a post-globalist world order era. So, once again, that's what's at stake. I, I, I guess I'm, I'm less optimistic as my colleague uh, when it comes to how this usually shapes out. It almost certainly boils down to uh, it becoming some sort of white nationalist movement within these countries. You've seen it with uh, um, Le Pen in, uh, in, uh, in France. Uh, you see it in Australia even. You see it in other countries. Uh, you see this happening in Germany. You see it happening in other places that they are, uh, uh, it's becoming defined within the construct of whiteness, okay? So it happens way too many times in history. It's, it's, a, it's a recurring cycle that this indeed happens that way. Is there an opportunity for, you know, people to just be citizens? I, I, I suppose so, um, but not likely. Not History tells me it's not likely, and, and current events tells me that it's not likely. Um, I would love to be wrong about this stuff. All right, so we're going to move on from News Junkie, uh, News Junkie Post. And we're going to go to uh, the Black Agenda Report. And it's a piece written by Ajuma Baraka. Uh, he was the 2016 vice presidential candidate of the Green Party. And so he writes for the Black Agenda Report as well. So he wrote a piece that I was looking at called Malcolm X and Human Rights in the Time of Trumpism, Transcending the Master's Tools. Now, he goes on to say, 52 years ago, on February 21st, the world lost the great anti-colonial fighter Malcolm X. Around the world, millions pause on this anniversary to take note of, a, of the life and contribution of Brother Malcolm. Two years ago, I keynoted a lecture on legacy of Malcolm X at the American University in Beirut, Lebanon. While I, held, while I had long been aware of the veneration that Malcolm inspired in various parts of the world, I was still struck by the love and appreciation that so many have for Malcolm beyond activists in the black world. There are a number of reasons that might explain why 52 years later, so many still pay homage to Malcolm. For those of us who operate within a context of the black radical tradition, Malcolm's political life and philosophy connected three streams of the black radical tradition, nationalism, anti-colonialism, and internationalism. For many, the way in which Malcolm approached those elements account for his appeal. Yet, I think there is something else. 
something not reducible to the language of political struggle and opposition that I hear when I encounter people in the U.S. and in other parts of the world when they talk about Malcolm. I suspect it is his defiance, his dignity, his courage, and his selflessness. For me, it is all of that. But it is also how those elements were reflected in his politics, and particularly his approach to the concept of human rights. Near the end, wonderful, once again, another beautifully written uh, uh, piece here by Juma Baraka in the Black Agenda Report. And he does. He weaves, Malcolm did weave those strands of defiance, his dignity, his courage, and his selflessness. I've always said that as surely as Martin may have represented uh, the heart uh, in many ways of the black community, Malcolm represented the spine, the backbone, the defiance, the, the, the dignified defiance <laughs> Malcolm did. But yeah, the love and appreciation goes beyond the borders of this nation. And uh, we lost a great one when he went on, when he was taken from us. So let's focus on those three streams of black radical tradition, nationalism, anti-colonialism, and internationalism. Meaning this, nationalism. Once again, there's that word again, nationalism. Uh, and it's kind of funny. Now, some would say, well, black people are talking about nationalism. Well, here's the thing. Black nationalism is a response to a racist construct that would have you living as a second-class citizen in a country that you were born in and your ancestors were here before the very people... <laughs> that want to deny you your humanity and your citizenship. And I think that when you put these two pieces together, the one by Jibere Mercier of News Junkie Post, and the one here by Ajuma Baraka of the Black Agenda Report, what you see here, you place these two things together, what you see here is the various ways that people buck up or buck against the, the system, where they bump against and they bump against the oppression, the oppression of trying to rob one of one's identity. In Europe, there are people fighting to not be robbed of their French identity or their German identity or their British identity. And I don't begrudge them that. I, I think that you, 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 if you can be proud of, of, of your heritage, that's fine. The aspect of your heritage to be proud of, that's fine. But I do find that when we as black people talk about the same things as Juma is talking about here, we're looked at as being hostile. When we talk about our identity. 
democracy in the eat when the people in France and the people in Britain and the people in Germany are bucking against the EU. It is never called identity politics, but it indeed is about identity. Do you hear what I'm saying? <laughs> okay. It is indeed about identity. But yet, when black people talk about what we have gone through in this country and in places in Europe and being colonized by Europeans in our own continent of Africa and, and in places like Haiti and other places around the globe, when we talk about addressing those uh, uh, injustices, addressing those fractures and relationships that we have in our own country, it is called identity politics. I hope you see that contrast. I hope you see it. I hope it's not just bouncing off your head and at my feet. Maybe it is. Maybe it's going in one end, coming out the other. Maybe it is. But there is truth in what I'm saying. Current events and history bears this out. Okay? So, Ajuma goes on to say, the aspects of his thought and practice that distinguished the period of his work in that short year between his break with the Nation of Islam and in 1964 and his assassination in 1965 included not only his anti-racism and anti-colonial stance, but also his advocacy of a radical approach to the, to the issue of human rights. And so that's what Malcolm came to. He came to, he says, it's not about civil rights. He said, this is about, this is about human rights. You hear him saying that over and over again in that short period of time that uh, Brother Baraka is talking about here. So I, I suggest you go to Black Agenda Report and read this wonderful uh, article by Ajuma Baraka here, and then also go to newsjunkiepost.com uh, and read the wonderful argue, uh, uh, excuse me, article by uh, Jabert Mercier uh, on News Junkie uh, Post. Now we're going to go to um, Mint Press News. Mint Press News. And, and I talked a little bit about this on uh, Saturday. It talked about losing four diplomats. Four. Four, four, dip, four top Russian diplomats die mysteriously in two months, 60 days. And is basically ignored by the media. How do you do that? I mean, I, I, you know, if you want to, if you want people to stop believing Trump when it comes to quote-unquote fake news, then you need to challenge the media when it comes to things like this. You can't ignore four top Russian diplomats dying mysteriously in the last 60 days. I'm telling you, it seems to me like someone's trying to push uh, that country into a war uh, with either some, with, with Europe, you know, as a whole, even, or, you know, um, with us in the U.S. So, uh, this is written by Whitney Webb. Uh, Media silent as four top Russian diplomats die mysteriously in the last 60 days. And she goes on to write, while few might consider being a diplomat a life-threatening or even dangerous job, that trend may be quickly reversing. 
This is, at least for Russian diplomats, with recent media attention squarely focused on Donald Trump's ascension to the Oval Office and various controversies swirling throughout the early days of his presidency, a string of sudden, mysterious deaths of top Russian diplomats have largely evaded media scrutiny and public attention. Further, public interest in these deaths, at least in the, in the United States, has been minimized as much as the negative press Trump has received along the same time frame has been related to his allegedly close relationship with the Russian government, tying in with months of anti-Russian propaganda relating to the Syrian conflict and allegations that Russia had a role in manipulating the U.S. presidential election. Okay, so as much attention as those ties that have never that has not been adequately proven yet, even the U.S. intelligence services says, well, you know, it looks like Russia, but you know, we don't know. All right, so we paid a lot of attention to that, but the very real deaths of these diplomats goes ignored. I mean, it, it, you know. As Hamlet says, there's something rotten in Denmark. But let's move on. Since late December, four top Russian diplomats, including three ambassadors, have died under circumstances that remain unclear. This troublesome trend began on December 20th when Andrei Karlov, Russia's ambassador to Turkey, was gunned down in Ankara during a photo exhibition event. The assailant, a 22-year-old off-duty Turkish police officer, took advantage of the bloody spectacle to yell, don't forget Aleppo. A reference to Russia's controversial role, and I don't know why it's controversial, you know, our role is actually controversial, we're back in terrorists, but anyway, a uh, reference to Russia's controversial role in helping the Syrian government reclaim what was once the country's largest city from U.S.-backed Al-Qaeda terrorists. You know, I eat, like I said, she does a wonderful job here, uh, Whitney Webb does, uh, of weaving this story together. Karlov's death came at a critical juncture in Russian-Turkish relations as the two nations were in the midst of reconciliation efforts following an incident in which Turkey shot down a Russian fighter jet over Syria in 2015, damaging diplomatic relations. Now, here's the, you know, I don't believe in coincidence, as they're mending that relationship, as they're getting closer to, okay, resolving the issues between them, that's when this 22-year-old off-duty off Turkish police officer, you know, bam, shoots him. At, you know, I don't believe in coincidences. That, as, as was said in one of my favorite movies, there's no such thing as coincidences. It's just plans other people make and don't tell you about. Okay? Uh -huh. So Russia, Russian President Vladimir Putin called Karlov's assassination a clear provocation intended to derail Syrian uh, peace negotiations. Turkish uh, President uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan uh, echoed those sentiments, adding, uh, both Turkey and Russia have the will not to be deceived by this false flag attack. And you know what a false flag is? It's something that someone does from you know, to distract people from what's actually happening. So let's say like in Vietnam, the Gulf of Tonkin, that never happened, you know, or, you know, we used, uh, as we used uh, terrorists in other countries, uh, 
to blow things up and then to try to blame it, you know, on other folks, this false flag sort of thing. Um, so it says both Turkey and Russia have the will not to be deceived by this false flag attack. Let's hope not. Uh, so, you know, so we go on from there and, and um, uh, uh, Andre Malinin, uh dead. Russia at the Russian, you know, you know, it was, a, you know, a diplomat at the embassy, Russia's embassy in the Greek capital, uh, found dead, uh, uh, Katakin, dead, and Vitaly Cherkin, which I talked about at great length on Saturday, dead. So you have four Russian diplomats, top Russian diplomats, dead in the span of 60 days. And how much do we hear on the mainstream media about these stories? This is news, people. We, you don't think we should know in this country about, <laughs> about four Russian diplomats being killed in the span or dying in the span of 60 days? In the span of 60 days? I, you know, I think that we sometimes are our own worst enemy. And what do I mean by that? I mean, we don't question things enough. We don't, we don't demand answers. We become mollified. We become pacified. We're not hungry for the truth. And I find that in order to understand, in order to grasp things, you have to be hungry for the truth. If you can be pacified, forget about. I mean, as a as a parent, I, I you know I I observed this when my children were babies, okay. And if they weren't really hungry, you can put a pacifier. They get fussy, you know. Are you hungry? Stick a pacifier in their mouth, and then they you know nod off or they calm down. They're cool. That's if they're not really hungry. If they are really hungry, you stick that pacifier and they'll spit it out. They stick that and spit it out and they'll keep crying. They'll keep crying and they'll keep crying until they get fed. Okay? Now, me being a lover of analogies, this is where we have to, we have to grow up, okay? We have to become hungry for the truth and, 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 and we're not. And I'm speaking of our country here, the United States. Um, we're not hungry. We become mollified. I mean, how do you allow this, you know, to happen without raising some sort of questions about this? Why, why are we not seeing this more in, in, in the media here in the United States? How come there's not more reporting about this? Okay. So we move on to the last piece and the Atlanta Black Star. And it's a piece about Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, you know. And the author brings up a great point in this piece. They bring up a great point. The author brings up a great point in this piece. Uh, the name of the piece is No, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings did not have a relationship. Now, as history is dissected, we know that she bore 
six children of his, according to history. Okay? Gave birth to six of Jefferson's children. And the article goes, and it's written by uh, Gus T. Renegade. <laughs> and it goes on, uh, former President Thomas Jefferson's Monticello plantation is undergoing a $35 million renovation to demonstrate that enslaved lives matter. Monticello, uh, Monticello uh, historian Krista uh, Dirkscheid uh, described the makeover as an investment to ensure visitors to the historic site understand that there was no place on this mountaintop that slavery wasn't. Thomas Jefferson was surrounded by people and the vast majority of these people were enslaved. Now, although Jefferson held captive more than 600 black people over his lifetime, their existence has mostly been concealed from visitors to this Virginia landmark. So what <laughs> this is this is this is what I mean. This is what I was talking about in the earlier articles that that we read about nationalism and how it ultimately in these countries US and, and Europe, countries in Europe, it becomes whitewashed. It becomes about whiteness because I don't know how you leave slavery out. <laughs> I don't know how you leave slavery out of the story of Thomas Jefferson. I don't know how you do it. I mean, even if he didn't have six children with uh, his slave, Sally Hemings, he was still, as the article said, surrounded. There were more slaves, you know, you know, around Monticello and in Monticello, then there was white people. But yet, you visit the historic site of where Thomas Jefferson lived. You don't, they weren't talking, you know, it was slave free. You know, I, I you know, I, let's move on here, okay? Because this is like incredulous to me. <laughs> All right. Even Sally Hemings, the enslaved black female who gave birth to six of Jefferson's children, wasn't mentioned, according to Dirkshide, because she was viewed as something that could taint Jefferson's reputation. The Washington Post, uh, Krista Thompson, highlights the tackiness of the concealment. The room where historians believe Sally Hemings slept was just steps away from Thomas Jefferson's bedroom, but in 1941, the caretakers of Monticello turned it into a restroom, a bathroom. They turned Sally Hemings' bedroom into a bathroom. Can't make this stuff up, folks. Now, he said, they, you know, the article says, no, Thomas Jefferson, Sally Hemings did not have a relationship. What he is saying here, uh, Gus T. Renegade is saying here, is that, look, she was a slave. So any sexual contact, and he quotes Robert Jensen uh, from the University of Austin, uh, professor at the University of Austin, who wrote the book, The uh, Heart of uh, Whiteness, says that he gets the most hateful reaction from white people, and he happens to be white himself, when he declares the incontrovertible logic that dictates that, Sa that Thomas Jefferson raped Sally Hemings. 
Any sexual contact between a slave and a master is essentially a case of rape. Now, I only have to finish what he said. We have to understand it as that. Because does a slave have a choice? Does a slave have a choice? And whether she has sex with her quote-unquote master. No. Your property. You don't have a choice. No more choice than a horse has to be rode. No more choice than an ox has to be to, to plow. No more choice than those pieces of property. No more choice as a slave. So you can't honestly call it a relationship. And I've seen movies where they made it so tender and they, oh, it was consenting and she really loved Thomas Jefferson and oh, he was uh, so attentive to her. I, I mean, <laughs> talk about propaganda. And this is why, as I said earlier, America is just as, the United States of America is just as susceptible to propaganda as any country on the globe because American history, U.S. history, is by and large filled with propaganda. We have been conditioned to accept propaganda. So when we, you know, talk about, you know, when fake news or anything, we've been conditioned to not question that. We've been conditioned not to be. Why? Because we've been conditioned to accept the propaganda of U.S. history. See, when it comes to hashtag Independent Media Monday, you're not just getting the news. <laughs> you're also getting a history lesson. <laughs> the professor in me jumps out from time to time. So we have been conditioned in this country, all of us have been conditioned to accept the propaganda. Now, though we can break out of that quote unquote matrix if we so choose. But the conditioning exists. And one of the greatest tools against that conditioning of propaganda in our current news, in our current, you know, uh, uh, news broadcasting uh, arena is independent media. Independent media. Can an independent journalist get something wrong just as well as a journalist uh, who is part of what we call the mainstream media? Yeah. Yeah, very much so. But the reasons why an independent journalist gets something wrong is usually vastly different than why someone in the mainstream media gets it wrong. Many times people in the mainstream media get it wrong because they're too beholden to corporate interest. They're too beholden to partisan interest. And they're too beholden to the access they get from the powerful people in government that they go along and they parrot the company line and they cease to be journalists or investigative reporters and they become merely court reporters or stenographers. Where you just type what's said. 
I think we owe the public more now. I think we owe the public the opportunity to read between the lines, to see what isn't said. Because to me, that's the more interesting scenario. I hear what you're saying. I'm paying attention to what you're not saying, too. And I'm paying attention to what you're saying and what you're, what you're saying indicates other than the exact words you're saying. It's not a tongue twister, people. It's really how we have to dissect and discern the news and the media. All right. So that does it for us on hashtag Independent Media Monday. Please go to the independent media sources you find on uh, my uh, page. Um, News Junkie Post. Mint Press News, Black Agenda Report, and others, and the Atlanta Black Star. So be sure to support independent media. Look, people, and I'm going to tell you this one more time. You haven't been following the Rhymes Media Group on Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> Click on the follow button so that you can get the, you know, the, the, the reports and and, and you can get uh, uh, ahead of time. You can get uh, reminders about the different programs and so forth. So make sure you follow Rhymes Media Group on Blog Talk Radio. Make sure you like Rhymes Media Group on Facebook. And make sure that you donate to Rhymes Media Group. We need your help, people. We need your help in order to move forward and do the critical work that we need to do this. Look, what you all made me have to do here is I had to go with commercials. When you listen to our programs now, you'll hear commercials. It was commercial free before. And I find that a lot of independent media people are put in that position because the donations don't come in. Now, I know that, you know, we got bills to pay and there are things we need to do. But all I'm saying is, you know, for that extra meal you go out and eat, you know, during the week, you know, out, you know, eating out, you know, you know, forego it. That big, you know, heaping cup of cappuccino, cafe latte, you know, cappuccino. I mean, go without one for a day. You know, drop, you know, drop, you know, a little money in the hat of us independent media people. All right. Uh, so you take care of yourself out there. God bless and be safe.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.